Thank you so much for listening to Carla Reads the Classics, the unique podcast that provides classic literature enjoyment for everyone. For many, it's an indispensable help with required reading homework. That's 24 classic literature titles a year. We all love that Carla's characters are undeniably engaging and expressive. Are you tired of the ads? We know. So now is the time to step up and subscribe to the podcast and get rid of the ads. Click on support and choose your monthly contribution of 99 cents, 4.99 or 9.99. Don't forget you can also cash app a tip to dollar sign Carla Reads. That's Carla with a K. Also visit anchor.fm/carla3507. Did you know Carla has some great merch? Hoodies, phone covers, t-shirts, stickers and more. Let the world know that you love the classics. Don't forget to subscribe to Carla's YouTube channel. Yeah, Carla's on YouTube. You'll find the link and other information in the episode details. Again, Carla thanks you for your support. The Picture of Dorian Gray, Chapter 9 As he was sitting at breakfast next morning, Basil Hallward was shown into the room. I am so glad I have found you, Dorian, he said gravely. I called last night and they told me you were at the opera. Of course, I knew that was impossible. But I wish you had left word where you had really gone to. I passed a dreadful evening, half afraid that one tragedy might be followed by another. I think you might have telegraphed me for when you heard of it first. I read of it quite by chance and in a late edition of The Globe that I picked up at the club. I came here at once and was miserable at not finding you. I can't tell you how heartbroken I am about the whole thing. I know what you must suffer, but where were you? Did you go down and see the girl's mother? For a moment, I thought of following you there. They gave the address in the paper, somewhere in the Euston Road, isn't it? But I was afraid of intruding upon a sorrow that I could not lighten. Poor woman, what a state she must be in, and her only child, too. What did she say about it all? My dear Basil, how do I know? murmured Dorian Gray, sipping some pale yellow wine from a delicate gold-beaded bubble of Venetian glass and looking dreadfully bored. I was at the opera. You should have come on there. I met Lady Gwendolen, Harry's sister, for the first time. We were in her box. She is perfectly charming, and Patty sang divinely. Don't talk about horrid subjects. If one doesn't talk about a thing... It has never happened. It is simply expression, as Harry says, that gives reality to things. I may mention that she was not the woman's only child. There is a son, a charming fellow, I believe, but he is not on the stage. He is a sailor or something. And now, tell me about yourself and what you are painting. You went to the opera? said Hallward, speaking very slowly and with a strained, with a strained touch of pain in his voice. You went to the opera while Sybil Vane was lying dead in some sordid lodging? You can talk to me of other women being charming and of Patty singing divinely before the girl you loved has even had the the quiet of a grave to sleep in? Why, man, there are horrors in store for that little white body of hers. Stop, Basil, I won't hear it, cried Dorian, leaping to his feet. You must not tell me about things. What is done is done. What is past is past. You called yesterday the past? 
What has the actual lapse of time got to do with it? It is only shallow people who require years to get rid of an emotion. A man who is master of himself can end a sorrow as easily as he can invent a pleasure. I don't want to be at the mercy of my emotions. I want to use them, to enjoy them, and to dominate them. Dorian, this is horrible. Something has changed you completely. You look exactly the same wonderful boy who, day after day, used to come down to my studio to sit for his picture. But you were simple, natural, and affectionate then. You were the most unspoiled creature in the whole world. Now, I don't know what has come over you. You talk as if you had no heart, no pity in you. It is all Harry's influence. I see that. The lad flushed up and, going to the window, looked out for a few moments on the green, flickering, sun-lashed garden. I owe a great deal to Harry, Basil, he said at last, more than I owe to you. You only taught me to be vain. Well, I am punished for that, Dorian, or shall be some day. I don't know what you mean, Basil, he exclaimed, turning round. I don't know what you want. What do you want? I want the Dorian Gray I used to paint, said the artist sadly. Basil, said the lad, going over to him and putting his hand on his shoulder. You have come too late. Yesterday, when I heard that Sybil Vane had killed herself. Killed herself? Good heavens! Is there no doubt about that? cried Hallward, looking up at him with an expression of horror. Yes, my dear Basil, surely you don't think it was a vulgar accident. Of course she killed herself. The elder man buried his face in his hands. How fearful, he muttered, and a shudder ran through him. No, said Dorian Gray, there is nothing fearful about it. It is one of the great romantic tragedies of the age. As a rule, people who act lead the most commonplace lives. They are good husbands or faithful wives or something tedious. You know what I mean, middle-class virtue and all that kind of thing. How different Sybil was. She lived her finest tragedy. She was always a heroine. The last night she played, the night you saw her, she acted badly because she had known the reality of love. When she knew its unreality, she died, as Juliet might have died. She passed again into the sphere of art. There is something of the martyr about her. Her death has all the pathetic uselessness of martyrdom, all its wasted beauty. But, as I was saying, you must not think I have not suffered. If you had come in yesterday at a particular moment, about half-past five, perhaps, or a quarter to six, you would have found me in tears. Even Harry, who was here, who brought me the news, in fact, had no idea what I was going through. I suffered immensely. Then it passed away. I cannot repeat an emotion. No one can, except sentimentalists. And you are awfully unjust, Basil. You come down here to console me. That is charming of you. You find me consoled, and you are furious. How, like a sympathetic person, you remind me of a story Harry told me about a certain philanthropist who spent 20 years of his life in trying to get some grievance redressed or some unjust law altered. I forget exactly what it was. Finally, he succeeded, and nothing could exceed his disappointment. He had absolutely nothing to do, almost died of ennui, and became a confirmed misanthrope. And besides, my dear old Basil, if you really want to console me, teach me rather to forget what has happened or to see it from a proper artistic point of view. Was it not Gautier who used to write about La, Consol La Consolation des Arts? I remember picking up a little vellum-covered book in your studio one day and chancing on that delightful phrase. 
Well, I am not like that dying young man you told me of when we were down at Marlow together, the young man who used to say that yellow satin could console one for all the miseries of life. I love beautiful things that one can touch and handle. Old brocades, green bronzes, lacquer work, carved ivories, exquisite surroundings, luxury, pomp. There is much to be got from all these, but the artistic temperament that they create, or at any rate reveal, is still more to me. To become the spectator of one's own life, as Harry says, is to escape the suffering of life. I know you are surprised at my talking to you like this. You have not realized how I have developed. I was a schoolboy when you knew me. I am a man now. I have new passions, new thoughts, new ideas. I am different, but you must not like me less. I am changed, but you must always be my friend. Of course, I am very fond of Harry, but I know that you are better than he is. You are not stronger. You are too much afraid of life, but you are better. And how happy we used to be together. Don't leave me, Basil, and don't quarrel with me. I am what I am. There is nothing more to be said. The painter felt strangely moved. The lad was infinitely dear to him, and his personality had been the great turning point in his art. He could not bear the idea of reproaching him any more. After all, his indifference was probably merely a mood that would pass away. There was so much in him that was good, so much in him that was noble. Well, Dorian, he said at length, with a sad smile, I won't speak to you again about this horrible thing after today. I only trust your name won't be mentioned in connection with it. The inquest is to take place this afternoon. Have they summoned you? Dorian shook his head, and a look of annoyance passed over his face at the mention of the word inquest. There was something so crude and vulgar about everything of the kind. They don't know my name, he answered. But surely she did. Only my Christian name, and that I am quite sure she never mentioned to anyone. She told me once that they were all rather curious to learn who I was, and that she invariably told them my name was Prince Charming. It was pretty of her. You must do me a drawing of Sybil, Basil. I should like to have something more of her than the memory of a few kisses and some broken pathetic words. I will try and do something, Dorian, if it would please you. But you must come and sit to me yourself again. I can't get on without you. I can never sit to you again, Basil. It is impossible, he exclaimed, starting back. The painter stared at him. My dear boy, what nonsense, he cried. Do you mean to say you don't like what I did of you? Where is it? Why have you pulled the screen in front of it? Let me look at it. It is the best thing I have ever done. Do take the screen away, Dorian. It is simply disgraceful of your servant hiding my work like that. I felt the room look different as I... I felt the room look different as I came in. My servant has nothing to do with it, Basil. You, you don't imagine I let him arrange my room for me. He settles my flowers for me sometimes, that is all. No, I did it myself. The light was too strong on the portrait. Too strong? Surely not, my dear fellow. It is an admirable place for it. Let me see it. And Hallward walked towards the corner of the room. A cry of terror broke from Dorian Gray's lips, and he rushed between the painter and the screen. Basil, he said, looking very pale, you must not look at it. I don't wish you to. Not look at my own work? You are not serious. Why shouldn't I look at it? exclaimed Hallward, laughing. 
If you try to look at it, Basil, on my word of honor, I will never speak to you again as long as I live. I am quite serious. I don't offer any explanation, and you are not to ask for any. But remember, if you touch the screen, everything is over between us. Hallward was thunderstruck. He looked at Dorian Gray in absolute amazement. He had never seen him like this before. The lad was actually pallid with rage. His hands were clenched, and the pupils of his eyes were like discs full of, full of blue fire. He was trembling all over. Dorian! Don't speak. But what is the matter? Of course I won't look at it if, if you don't want me to, he said, he said rather coldly, turning on his heel and going over towards the window. But really... It seems rather absurd that I shouldn't see my own work, especially as I am going to exhibit it in Paris in the autumn. I shall probably have to give it another coat of varnish before that, so I must see it some day. And why not today? To exhibit it. You want to exhibit it? exclaimed Dorian Gray, a strange sense of terror creeping over him. Was the world going to be shown his secret? Were people to gape at the mystery of his life? That was impossible. Something... He did not know what had to be done at once. Yes, I don't suppose you will object to that. George Petit is going to collect all my best pictures for a special exhibition in Rue de Sez, which will open the first week in October. The portrait will be the only the portrait will be away one month. I should think you could easily spare it for that time. In fact, you are sure to be out of town, and if you keep it always behind a screen, you can't care much about it. Dorian Gray passed his hand over his forehead. There were beads of perspiration there. He felt that he was on the brink of a horrible danger. You told me a month ago that you would never exhibit it, he cried. Why have you changed your mind? You people who go in for being consistent have just as many moods as others have. The only difference is that your moods are rather meaningless. You can't have forgotten that you assured me most solemnly that nothing in the world would induce you to send it to any, ex to any exhibition. You told Harry exactly the same thing. He stopped suddenly and a gleam of light came into his eyes. He remembered that Lord Henry had said to him once, half seriously and half in jest, if you want to have a strange quarter of an hour, get Basil to tell you why he won't exhibit your picture. He told me why he wouldn't, and it was a revelation to me. Yes, perhaps Basil, too, had his secret. He would ask him and try. Basil, he said, coming over quite close and looking him straight in the face. We have each of us a secret. Let me know yours, and I shall tell you mine. What was your reason for refusing to exhibit my picture? The painter shuddered in spite of himself. Dorian, if I told you, you might like me must you might like me less than you do, and you would certainly laugh at me. I could not bear your doing either of those two things. If you wish me never to look at your picture again, I am content. I have always you to look at. If you wish the best work I have ever done to be hidden from the world, I am satisfied. Your friendship is dearer to me than any fame or reputation. No, Basil, you must tell me, insisted Dorian Gray. I think I have a right to know. His feeling of terror had passed away, and curiosity had taken its place. He was determined to find out Basil Hallward's mystery. Let us sit down, Dorian, said the painter, looking troubled. Let us sit down, and just answer me one question. 
Have you noticed in the picture something curious, something that probably at first did not strike you, but that revealed itself to you suddenly? Basil, cried the lad, clutching his arms of clutching the arms of his chair with trembling hands and gazing at him with wild, startled eyes. I see you did. Don't speak. Wait till you hear what I have to say. Dorian, from the moment I met you, your personality had the most extraordinary influence over me. I was dominated, soul, brain, and power by you. You became to me the visible incarnation of that unseen ideal whose memory haunts us artists like an exquisite dream. I worshipped you. I grew jealous of every one to whom you spoke. I wanted to have you all to myself. I was only happy when I was with you. When you were away from me, you were still present in my art. Of course, I never let you know anything about this. It would have been impossible. You would not have understood it. I hardly understood it myself. I only knew that I had seen perfection face to face and that the world had come had become wonderful to my eyes, too wonderful, perhaps, for in such mad worships there is peril, the peril of losing them, no less than the peril of keeping them. Weeks and weeks went on, and I grew more and more absorbed in you. Then came a new development. I had drawn you as Paris in dainty armor, as an Adonis with huntsman's cloak and polished boar spear, crowned with heavy lotus blossoms. You had sat on the prow of Adrian's barge, gazing across the green turbid Nile. You had leaned over the still pool of some Greek woodland and seen in the waiter's silver, silent silver, the marvel of your own face. And it had all been what art should be unconscious, ideal, and remote. One day, a fatal day, I sometimes think, I determined to paint a wonderful portrait of you as you actually are, not in the costume of dead ages, but in your own dress and in your own time. Whether it was the realism of the method or the mere wonder of your own personality, thus directly presented to me without Mr. Vale, I cannot tell, I cannot tell. But I know that as I worked at it, every flake and film of color seemed to me to reveal my secret. I grew afraid that others would know of my idolatry. I felt, Dorian, that I had told too much, that I had put too much of myself into it. Then it was that, then it was that I resolved never to allow the picture to be exhibited. You were a little annoyed, but then you did not realize all that it meant to me. Harry, to whom I talked about it, laughed at me, but I did not mind that. When the picture was finished and I sat alone with it, I felt that it was right. Well, after a few days, the thing left my studio, and as soon as I had got rid of the intolerable fascination of his presence, it seemed to me that I had been foolish in imagining that I had seen anything in it more than that you were extremely good-looking and that I could paint— even now, I cannot help feeling that it is a mistake to think that the passion one feels in creation is ever really shown in the work one creates. Art is always more abstract than we fancy. Form and color tell us of form and color. Tell us of form and color. That is all. It often seems to me that art conceals the artist far more completely than it ever reveals him. And so, when I got this offer from Paris... I determined to make your portrait the principal thing in my exhibition. It never occurred to me that you would refuse. I see now that you are right. The picture cannot be shown. You must not be angry with me, Dorian, for what I have told you. As I said to Harry once, you are made to be worshipped. 
Dorian Gray drew a long breath. The color came back to his cheeks, and a smile played about his lips. The peril was over. He was safe for the time, yet he could not help feeling infinite pity for the painter who had just made his strange confession to him and wondered if he himself could ever be so dominated by the personality of a friend. Lord Henry had the charm of being very dangerous, but that was all. He was too clever and too cynical to be really fond of. Would there ever be someone who could fill him with a strange idolatry? Was that one of the things that life had in store? It is extraordinary to me, Dorian, said Hallward, that you should have seen this in the portrait. Did you really see it? I saw something in it, he answered, something that seemed to me very curious. Well, you don't mind my looking at the thing now. Dorian shook his head. You must not ask me that, Basil. I could not possibly let you stand in front of that picture. You will some day, surely. Never. Well, perhaps you are right. And now, goodbye, Dorian. You have been the one person in my life who has really influenced my art. Whenever I have done whatever I have done that is good, I owe to you. Ah, you don't know what it costs me to tell you all that I have told you. My dear Basil, said Dorian, what have you told me? Simply that you felt that you admired me too much. That is not even a compliment. It was not intended as a compliment. It was a confession. Now that I have made it, something seems to have gone out of me. Perhaps one should never put one's worship into words. It was a very disappointing confession. Why, what did you expect, Dorian? You didn't see anything else in the picture, did you? There was nothing else to see. No, there was nothing else to see. Why do you ask? But you mustn't talk about worship. It is foolish. You and I are friends, Basil, and we must always remain so. You have got Harry, said the painter sadly. Oh, Harry, cried the lad, with a ripple of laughter. Harry spends his days in saying what is incredible and his evenings in doing what is improbable. Just the sort of life I would like to lead, but I still don't think I would go to Harry if I were in trouble. I would sooner go to you, Basil. You will sit to me again? Impossible. You spoiled my life as an artist by refusing, Dorian. No man comes across two ideal things. Few come across one. I can't explain it to you, Basil, but I must never sit to you again. There is something fatal about a portrait. It has a life of its own. I will come and have tea with you. That will be just as pleasant. Pleasanter for you, I am afraid, murmured Hallward regretfully. And now, goodbye. I am sorry you won't let me look at the picture once again, but that can't be helped. I quite understand what you feel about it. As he left the room, Dorian Gray smiled to himself. Poor Basil, how little he knew of the true reason, and how strange it was that, instead of having been forced to reveal his own secret, he had succeeded, almost by chance, in wresting a secret from his friend. How much that strange confession explained to him. The painter's absurd fits of jealousy, his wild devotion, his extravagant panegyrics, his curious reticences. He understood them all now, and he felt sorry. There seemed to him to be something tragic in a friendship so colored by romance. He sighed and touched the bell. The portrait must be hidden away at all costs. He could not run such a risk of discovery again. It had been mad of him to have allowed the thing to remain even for an hour in a room to which any of his friends had access.
Chapter 10 When his servant entered, he looked at him steadfastly and wondered if he had thought of peering behind the screen. The man was quite impassive and waited for his orders. Dorian lit a cigarette and walked over to the glass and glanced into it. He could see the reflection of Victor's face perfectly. It was like a placid mask of servility. There was nothing to be afraid of there, yet he thought it best to be on his guard. Speaking very slowly, he told him to tell the housekeeper that he wanted to see her, and then to go to the frame maker and ask him to send two of his men round at once. It seemed to him that, as the man left the room, his eyes wandered in the direction of the screen. Or was that merely his own fancy? After a few moments, in her black silk dress, with old-fashioned thread mittens on her wrinkled hands, Mrs. Leaf bustled into the library. He asked her for the key of the schoolroom. The old schoolroom, Mr. Dorian, she exclaimed. Why, it is full of dust. I must get it arranged and put straight before you go into it. It is not fit for you to see, sir. It is not indeed. I don't want it put straight, Leaf. I only want the key. Well, sir, you'll be covered with cobwebs if you go into it. Why, it hasn't been opened for nearly five years, not since his lordship died. He winced at the mention of his grandfather. He had hateful memories of him. That does not matter, he answered. I simply want to see the place, that is all. Give me the key. And here is the key, sir, said the old lady, going over the contents of her bunch with tremulously uncertain hands. Here is the key. I'll have it off the bunch in a moment. But you don't think of living up there, sir, and you do so comfortable here. No, no, he cried petulantly. Thank you, Leaf, that will do. She lingered for a few minutes and was garrulous over some detail of the household. He sighed and told her to manage things as she thought best. She left the room, wreathed in smiles. As the door closed, Dorian put the key in his pocket and looked round the room. His eye fell on a large purple satin coverlet heavily embroidered with gold, a splendid piece of late 17th century Venetian work that his grandfather had found in a convent near Bologna. "'Yes, that would serve to wrap the dreadful thing in. "'It had perhaps often served as the pall for the dead. "'Now it was to hide something that had a corruption of its own, "'worse than the corruption of the dead itself, "'something that would breed horrors and yet would never die. "'What the worm was to the corpse, "'his sins would be to the painted image on the canvas. "'They would mar its beauty and eat away its grace. "'They would defile it and make it shameful.' and yet the thing would still live on. It would always be alive. He shuddered, and for a moment he regretted that he had not told Basil the true reason why he had wished to hide the picture away. Basil would have helped him, helped him to resist Lord Henry's influence, and the still more poisonous influences that came from his own temperament. The love that he bore him, for it was really love, had nothing in it that was not noble and intellectual. It was not that mere physical admiration of beauty that is born of the senses and that dies when the senses tire. It was such love as Michelangelo had known, and Montaigne, and, and Winkleman, and Shakespeare himself. Yes, Basil could have saved him. But it was too late now. The past could always be annihilated. Regret, denial, and forgetfulness could do that. But the future was inevitable. There were passions in him that would find their terrible outlet, dreams that would make the shadow of their evil real. He took up from the couch the great purple and gold texture that covered it, and holding it in his hands, passed behind the screen. 
Was the face on the canvas viler than before? It seemed to him that it was unchanged, and yet his loathing of it was intensified. Gold hair, blue eyes, and rose-red lips, they all were there. It was simply the expression that had altered. That was horrible in its cruelty. Compared to what he saw in it of censure or rebuke, how shallow Basil's reproaches about Sybil Vane had been. How shallow, and of what little account. His own soul was looking out at him from the canvas and calling him to judgment. A look of pain came across him, and he flung the rich pall over the, over the picture. As he did so, a knock came to the door. He passed out as his servant in, entered. The persons are here, monsieur. He felt that the man must be got rid of at once. He must not be allowed to know where the picture was being taken to. There was something sly about him, and he had thoughtful, treacherous eyes. Sitting down at the writing table, he scribbled a note to Lord Henry, asking him to send round something to read and reminding him that they were to meet at 8.15 that evening. Wait for an answer, he said, handing it to him, and show the men in here. In two or three minutes, there was another knock, and Mr. Hubbard himself, the celebrated frame-maker of South Audley Street, came in with a somewhat rough-looking young assistant. Mr. Hubbard was a florid, red-whiskered little man whose admiration for art was considerably tempered by the inveterate and impecuniosity of most of the artists who dealt with him. As a rule, he never left his shop. He waited for people to come to him, but he always made an exception in favor of Dorian Gray. There was something about Dorian that charmed everybody. It was a pleasure even to see him. What can I do for you, Mr. Gray? He said, rubbing his fat, freckled hands. I thought I would do myself the honor of coming round in person. I have just got a beauty of a frame, sir. Picked it up at a sale. Old Florentine came from the Pontill, I believe, admirably suited for a religious subject, Mr. Gray. I am so sorry you have given yourself the trouble of coming round, Mr. Hubbard. I shall certainly drop in and look at the frame, though I don't go in much at present for religious art. But today I only want a picture carried to the top of the house for me. It is rather heavy, so I thought I would ask you to lend me a couple of your men. No trouble at all, Mr. Gray. I am delighted to be of any service to you. Which is the work of art, sir? This, replied Dorian, moving the screen back. Can you move it, covering it all, just as it is? I don't want it to get scratched going upstairs. There will be no difficulty, sir, said the genial frame maker, beginning with the aid of his assistant to unhook the picture from the long brass chains by which it was suspended. And now, where shall we carry it to, Mr. Gray? I will show you the way, Mr. Hubbard, if you will kindly follow me. Or perhaps you had better go in front. I am afraid it is right at the top of the house. We will go up by the front staircase as it is wider. He held the door open for them, and they passed out into the hall and began the ascent. The elaborate character of the frame had, met the, had made the picture extremely bulky, and now and then, in spite of the obsequious protests of Mr. Hubbard, who had the true tradesman's spirited dislike of seeing a gentleman doing anything useful, Dorian put his hand to it so as to help them. Something of a load to carry, sir gasped the little man when they reached the top landing, and he wiped his shiny forehead. I am afraid it is rather heavy, murmured Dorian, as he unlocked the door that opened into the room that was to keep for him the curious secret of his life and hide his soul from the eyes of men. He had not entered the place for more than four years, 
not indeed, since he had used it first as a playroom when he was a child, and then as a study when he grew somewhat older. It was a large, well-proportioned room, which had been specially built by the last Lord Kelso for the use of, of his little grandson, whom, for his strange likeness to his mother, and also for other reasons, had also hated and desired to keep at a distance. It appeared to Dorian to have but little changed. There was the huge Italian cassone, with, with its fantastically painted panels and its tarnished gilt moldings, in which he had so often hidden himself as a boy. There was the satinwood bookcase filled with his dog-eared school books. On the wall behind it was hanging the same ragged Flemish tapestry, where the faded king and queen were playing chess in a garden, while a company of hawkers rode by, carrying hooded birds on their gauntlet, gauntleted wrists. How well he remembered it all! Every moment of his lonely childhood came back to him as he looked round. He recalled the stainless purity of his boyish life, and it seemed horrible to him that it was here the fatal portrait was to be hidden away. How little he had thought in those dead days of all that was in store for him. But there was no other place in the house so secure from prying eyes as this. He had the key, and no one else could enter it. Beneath its purple pall, the face painted on the canvas could grow bestial, sodden, and unclean. What did it matter? No one could see it. He himself would not see it. Why should he watch the hideous corruption of his soul? He kept his youth. That was enough. And besides, might not his nature grow finer after all? There was no reason that the future should be so full of shame. Some love might come across his life and purify him and shield him from those sins that seemed to be already stirring in his spirit and in his flesh." those curious unpictured sins whose very mystery lent them their subtlety and their charm perhaps some day the cruel look would have passed away from the scarlet sensitive mouth and he might show the world basil hallworth's masterpiece no that was impossible hour by hour and week by week the thing upon the canvas was growing old it might escape the hideousness of sin, but the hideousness of age was in store for it. The cheeks would become hollow or flaccid. Yellow crow's feet would creep round the fading eyes and make them horrible. The hair would lose its brightness. The mouth would gape or droop, would be foolish or gross, as the mouths of old men are. There would be the wrinkled throat, the cold blue-veined hands, the twisted body that he remembered in the grandfather who had been so stern to him in his boyhood. The picture had to be concealed. There was no help for it. Bring it in, Mr. Hubbard, please, he said, wearily turning round. I am sorry I kept you so long. I was thinking of something else. Always glad to have a rest, Mr. Gray, answered the frame-maker, who was still gasping for breath. Where shall we put it, sir? Oh, anywhere. Here, this will do. I don't want to have it hung up. Just lean it against the wall. Thanks. Might one look at the work of art, sir? Dorian started. It would not interest you, Mr. Hubbard, he said, keeping his eye on the man. He felt ready to leap upon him and fling him to the ground if he dared to lift the gorgeous hanging that concealed the secret of his life. I shan't trouble you any more now. I am much obliged for your kindness in coming round. Not at all, not at all, Mr. Gray. Ever ready to do anything for you, sir. And Mr. Hubbard tramped downstairs, followed by the assistant, who glanced back at Dorian with a look of shy wonder in his rough, uncomely face. He had never seen anyone so marvelous. 
When the sound of their footsteps had died away, Dorian locked the door and put the key in his pocket. He felt safe now. No one would ever look upon the horrible thing. No eye but his would ever see his shame. On reaching the library, he found that it was just after five o'clock and that the tea had been already brought up. On a little table of dark perfumed wood, thickly encrusted with, nar with narcre, a present from Lady Radley, his guardian's wife, a pretty professional invalid who had spent the preceding winter in Cairo, was lying a note from Lord Henry, and beside it was a book bound in yellow paper, the cover slightly torn and the edges soiled. A copy of the third edition of the St. James's Gazette had been placed on the tea tray. It was evident that Victor had returned. He wondered if he had met the men in the hall as they were leaving the house and had wormed out of them what they had been doing. He would be sure to miss the picture, had no doubt missed it already while he had been, while he had been laying the tea things. The screen had not been set back and a blank space was visible on the wall. Perhaps some night he might find him creeping upstairs and trying to force the door of the room. It was a horrible thing to have a spy in one's house. He had heard of rich men who had been blackmailed all their lives by some servant who had read a letter or overheard a conversation or picked up a card with an address or found beneath a pillow a withered flower or a shred of crumpled lace. He sighed and, having poured himself out some tea, opened Lord Henry's note. It was simply to say that he sent him round the evening paper and a book that might interest him and that he would be at the club at 8.15. He opened the St. James's languidly and looked through it. A red pencil mark on the fifth page caught his eye. It drew attention to the following paragraph. Inquest on an Actress An inquest was held this morning at the Bell Tavern, Hoxton Road, by Mr. Danby, the district coroner, on the body of Sybil Vane, a young actress recently engaged at the Royal Theatre, Holborn. A verdict of death by, misadvan by misadventure was returned. Considerable sympathy was expressed for the mother of the deceased, who was greatly affected by the giving of her own evidence, and that of Dr. Byrell, who had made the post-mortem examination of the deceased. He frowned and, tearing the paper in two, went across the room and flung the pieces away. How ugly it all was, and how horribly real ugliness made things! He felt a little annoyed with Lord Henry for having sent him the report, and it was certainly stupid of him to have marked it with a red pencil— Victor might have read it. The man knew more than enough English for that. Perhaps he had read it and began to suspect something. And yet, what did it matter? What had Dorian Gray to do with Sybil Vane's death? There was nothing to fear. Dorian Gray had not killed her. His eye fell on the yellow book that Lord Henry had sent him. What was it, he wondered. He went towards the little pearl-colored octagonal stand that had always looked to him like the work of some strange Egyptian bees that wrought in silver, and taking up the volume, flung himself into an armchair and began to turn over the leaves. After a few moments, he became absorbed. It was the strangest book that he had ever read. It seemed to him that in exquisite raiment and to the delicate sound of flutes, the sins of the world were passing in dumb show before him. Things that he had dimly dreamed of were suddenly made real to him. Things of which he had never dreamed were gradually revealed. It was a novel without a plot, and with only one character, being indeed simply a psychological study of a certain young Parisian who spent his life trying to realize in the 19th century 
all the passions and modes of thought that belong to every century except his own, and to sum up, as it were, in himself the various moods through which the world spirit had ever passed, loving for their mere artificiality those renunciations that men have unwisely called virtue, as much as those natural rebellions that wise men still call sin. The style in which it was written was that curious jeweled style, vivid and obscure at once, full of argot and archaisms, of technical expressions and of elaborate paraphrases that characterizes the work of some of the finest artists of the French school of symbolistes. One hardly knew at times whether one was reading the spiritual ecstasies of some medieval saint or the morbid confessions of a modern sinner. It was a poisonous book. The heavy odor of incense seemed to cling about its pages and to trouble the brain. The mere cadence of the sentences, the subtle monotony of their music, so full as if it was of complex refrains and movements elaborately repeated, produced in the mind of the lad as he passed from chapter to chapter a form of reverie, a malady of dreaming that made him unconscious of the falling day and the creeping shadows." Cloudless and pierced by one solitary star, a copper-green sky gleamed through the windows. He read on, he read on by its wan light until he could read no more. Then, after his valet had reminded him several times of the lateness of the hour, he got up and, going into the next room, placed the book on the little Florentine table that always stood at his bedside and began to dress for dinner." It was almost nine o'clock before he reached the club, where he found Lord Lord Henry sitting alone in the morning room, looking very much bored. I am so sorry, Harry, he cried, but really it is entirely your fault. That book you sent me so fascinated me that I forgot how the time was going. Yes, I thought you would like it, replied his host, rising from his chair. I didn't say I liked it, Harry. I said it fascinated me. There is a great difference. Ah, "'You have discovered that,' murmured Lord Henry, and they passed into the dining-room. Chapter 11 For years Dorian Gray could not free himself from the influence of this book, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that he never sought to free himself from it. He procured from Paris no less than nine larger paper copies of the first edition and had them bound in different colors so that they might suit his various moods and the changing fancies of a nature over which he seemed at times to have almost entirely lost control. The hero, a wonderful young Parisian in whom the romantic and the scientific temperaments were so strangely blended, became to him a kind of prefiguring type of himself, and indeed the whole book seemed to him to contain the story of his own life, written before he had lived it. At one point he was more fortunate than the novelist's fantastic hero. He never knew, never indeed had any cause to know, that somewhat grotesque dread of mirrors and polished metal surfaces and still water which came upon the young Parisian so early in his life and was occasioned by the sudden decay of a bow that had once apparently been so remarkable. It was with an almost cruel joy, and perhaps in nearly every joy, as certainly in every pleasure, cruelty has its place, that he used to read the latter part of the book with its really tragic, if somewhat overemphasized, account of the sorrow and despair of one who had himself lost what in others and the world he had most dearly valued. 
for the wonderful beauty that had so fascinated Basil Hallward and many others beside him seemed never to leave him, even those who had heard of the most evil things against him, and from time to time strange rumors about his mode of life crept through London and became the chatter of the clubs, could not believe anything to dishonor when they saw him. He had always the look of one who had kept himself unspotted from the world. Men who talked grossly became silent when Dorian Gray entered the room. There was something in the purity of his face that rebuked them. His mere presence seemed to call, seemed to recall to them the memory of the innocence that they had tarnished. They wondered how one so charming and graceful as he could have escaped the stain of an age that was at once sordid and sensual. Often, on returning home from one of those mysterious and prolonged absences that gave rise to such strange conjecture among those who were his friends, or thought they were so, he himself would creep upstairs to the locked room, open the door with the key that never left him now, and stand with a mirror in front of the portrait that Basil Howard had painted of him, looking now at the evil and aging face on the canvas— and now at the fair young face that laughed back at him from the polished glass. The very sharpness of the contrast used to quicken his sense of pleasure. He grew more and more enamored of his own beauty, more and more interested in the corruption of his own soul. He would examine with minute care, and sometimes with a monstrous and terrible delight, the hideous lines that seared the wrinkling forehead, or crawled around the heavy sensual mouth, wondering sometimes which were the more horrible— the signs of sin, or the signs of age. He would place his white hands besides the coarse, bloated hands of the picture and smile. He mocked the misshapen body and the failing limbs. There were moments, indeed, at night when, lying sleepless in his own delicately scented chamber, or in the sordid room of the little ill-famed tavern near the docks, which, under an assumed name and in disguise— it was his habit to frequent, he would think of the ruin he had brought upon his soul with the pity that was all the more poignant because it was purely selfish. But moments such as these were rare. That curiosity about life which Lord Henry had first stirred in him as they sat together in the garden of their friend seemed to increase with gratification. The more he knew, the more he desired to know. He had mad hungers that grew more ravenous as he fed them. Yet he was not really reckless at any rate in his relations to society. Once or twice a month during the winter, and on each Wednesday evening while the season lasted, he would throw open to the world his beautiful house and have the most celebrated musicians of the day to charm his guests with the wonders of their art. His little dinners in the setting and the settling of which Lord Henry always assisted him were noted as much for the careful selection and placing of those invited as for the exquisite taste shown in the, decora in the decoration of the table with its subtle symphonic arrangements of exotic flowers and embroidered cloths and antique plates of gold and silver. Indeed, there were many, especially among the very young men, who saw, or fancied that they saw, in Dorian Gray the true realization of a type of which they had often dreamed in Eton or Oxford days, a type that was to combine something of a real culture of the scholar with all the grace and distinction of and perfect manner of a citizen of the world. To them, he seemed to be the company of those whom Dante's described as having sought to make themselves perfect by the worship of beauty. Like Gautier, he was one of for whom the visible world existed. And certainly to him, life itself was the first, the greatest of the arts, and 
For it all, the other art seemed to be but a preparation, fashioned by which what it is really fantastic becomes for a moment universal, and dandyism, which in its own way is an attempt to assert the absolute modernity of beauty, had, of course, their fascination for him. His mode of dressing and the particular styles that from time to time he affected had their marked influence on the young exquisites of the Mayfair balls and the pell-mell club windows who copied him and everything that he did and tried to reproduce the accidental charms of his grace, though to him only half serious, fopperies. For while he was but too ready to accept the position that was almost immediately offered to him on his coming of age, and found indeed a subtle pleasure in the thought that he might really become to the London of his own day, what to imperial Neronian Rome, the author of the Satriconian once had been, yet in his most inmost heart he desired to be something more than a mere arbiter elegantarium, to be consulted on the wearing of a jewel or the knotting of a necktie or the conduct of a cane. He sought to elaborate some new scheme of life that would have its reasoned philosophy and its ordered principles and find in the spiritualizing of the senses its highest realization. The worship of the senses has often, and with much justice, been decried, men feeling a natural instinct of horror about passions and sensations that seem stronger than themselves and that they are conscious of sharing with the less highly organized forms of existence. But it appeared to Dorian Gray that the true nature of the senses had never been understood and, they and that they had remained savage and animal merely because the world had sought to starve them into submission or to kill them by pain instead of aiming at making them elements of a new spirituality, of which a fine instinct for beauty was to be the dominant characteristic. As he looked back upon man moving through history, he was haunted by a feeling of loss. So much had been surrendered, and to such little purpose. There had been mad, willful rejections, monstrous forms of self-torture and self-denial, whose origin was fear and whose result was a degradation infinitely more terrible than the fancied degradation from which, in their ignorance, they had sought to escape. Nature, in her wonderful irony, driving out the anchorite to feed with the wild animals of the desert and giving to the hermit the beasts of the field as his companions. Yes, there was to be, as Lord Henry had prophesied, a new hedonism that was to recreate life and to save it from that harsh, uncomely puritanism that is having, in our own day, its curious revival. It was to have its service of the intellect, certainly, yet it was never to accept any theory or system that would involve the sacrifice of any mode of passionate experience. Its aim, indeed, was to be experience itself, and not the fruits of experience, sweet or bitter as they might be. Of the asceticism that deadens the senses, as of the vulgar profligacy that dulls them, it was to know nothing but it was to teach man to concentrate himself upon the moments of a life that is itself but a moment. There are few of us who have not sometimes wakened before dawn, either after one of those dreamless nights that make us almost enamored of death, or one of those nights of horror and misshapen joy, when through the chambers of the brain sweep phantoms more terrible than reality itself, an instinct with that vivid life that lurks in all grotesques and that lends to Gothic art an enduring vitality, this art being 
one might fancy, especially the art of those whose minds have been troubled with the malady of reverie. Gradually, white fingers creep through the curtains, and they appear to tremble. In black fantastic shapes, dumb shadows crawl into the corners of the room and crouch there. Outside, there is the stirring of birds among the leaves, or the sound of men going forth to their work, or the sigh and sob of the wind coming down from the hills and wandering round the silent house, as though it feared to wake the sleepers and yet must needs call forth sleep from her purple cave. Veil after veil of thin dusky gauze is lifted, and by degrees the forms and colors of the things are restored to them, and we watch the dawn remaking the world in its antique pattern. The wan mirrors get back their mimic life. The flameless tapers stand where we had left them, and beside them lies the half-cut book that we had been studying, or the wired flower that we had worn at the ball, or the letter that we had been afraid to read, or that we have read too often. Nothing seems to us changed. Out of the unreal shadows of the night comes back the real life that we had known. We have to resume it where we had left off, and there steals over us a terrible sense of the, necess of the necessity for the continuance of energy and that same wearisome, wearisome round of stereotyped habits, or a wild longing it may be, that our eyelids might open some morning upon a world that had been refashioned anew in the darkness for our pleasure." a world in which things would have fresh shapes and colors and be changed, or have other secrets, a world in which the past would have little or no place, or survive at any rate, and no conscious form of obligation or regret, the remembrance even of joy having its bitterness, and the memories of pleasure their pain. It was the creation of such worlds as these that seemed to Dorian Gray to be the, the true object, or amongst the true objects of life." And in his search for sensations that would be at once new and delightful, and possess that element of strangeness that is so essential to romance, he would often adopt certain modes of thought that he knew to be really alien to his nature, abandon himself to their subtle influences, and then, having, as it were, caught their color and satisfied his intellectual curiosity, leave them with that curious indifference that is not incompatible with the real ardor of temperament, and that, indeed, according to certain modern psych psychologists, is often a condition of it. It was rumored of him once that he was about to join the Roman Catholic communion, and certainly the Roman ritual had always a great attraction for him. The daily sacrifice, more awful really than all the sacrifices of the antique world, stirred him as much by its superb rejection of the evidence of the senses as by the primitive simplicity of its elements and the eternal pathos of the human tragedy that it sought to symbolize. He loved to kneel down on the cold marble pavement and watch the priest in his stiff-flowered dalmatic slowly and with white hands moving aside the veil of the tabernacle or raising aloft the jeweled, lantern-shaped monstrance with that pallid wafer that at times one would fain think is indeed the Panis Celestius, the bread of angels, or robed in the garments of the Passion of Christ, breaking the host into the chalice and smiting his breast for his sins. The fuming censers that the grave boys in their lace and scarlet tossed into the air like great gilt flowers had their subtle fascination for him. As he passed out, he used to look with wonder at the black confessionals and longed to sit in the dim shadow of one of them and listen to men and women whispering through the worn grating the true story of their lives. 
but he never fell into the error of arresting his intellectual development by any formal acceptance of creed or system or of mistaking for a house in which to live an inn that is but suitable for the sojourn of a night or for a few hours of a night in which there are no stars and the moon is in travail. Mysticism, with its marvelous power of making common things strange to us, and the subtle antinomianism that always seems to accompany it, moved him for a season, and for a season he inclined to the materialistic doctrines of the Darwin Darwinism's movement in Germany, and found a curious pleasure in tracing the thoughts and passions of men to some pearly cell in the brain or some white nerve in the body, delighting in the conception of the absolute dependence of the spirit on certain physical physical conditions, morbid or healthy, normal or diseased. Yet, as has been said of him before, no theory of life seemed to him to be of any importance compared with life itself. He felt keenly conscious of how barren all the intellectual speculation is when separated from action and experiment. He knew that the senses, no less than the soul, have their spiritual mysteries to reveal. And so he would now study perfumes and the secrets of their manufacture, distilling heavily scented oils and burning odorous gums from the East. He saw that there was no mood of the mind that had not its counterpart in the sensuous life and set himself to discover their true relations, wondering what there was in frankincense that made one mystical and an ambergris that stirred one's passions and in violets that woke the memory of dead romances and in musk that troubled the brain and in chimpac that stained the imagination and seeking often to elaborate a real psychology of perfumes and to estimate the several influences of sweet-smelling roots and scented pollen-laden flowers, of aromatic balms, and of bark and fragrant woods, of spikenard that sickens, of hovenia that makes men mad, and of aloes that are said to be able to expel melancholy from the soul. At another time, he devoted himself entirely to music, and in a long latticed room with a vermilion and gold ceiling and walls of olive-green lacquer, he used to give curious concerts in which mad gypsies tore wild music from little zithers or grave yellow shawl Tunisians plucked at the strange strings of monstrous lutes while grinning Negroes beat monotonously upon copper drums and crouching upon scarlet mats, slim turbaned Indians blew through long pipes of reed or brass and charmed or feigned to charm great hooded snakes and horrible horned adders. The harsh intervals and the shrill discords of barbaric music stirred him at times when Schubert's grace and Chopin's beautiful sorrows and the mighty harmonies of Beethoven himself fell unhe unheeded on his ear. He collected together from all parts of the world these strangest instruments that he could that could be found either in the tombs of dead nations or among the few savage savage tribes that survived contact with western civilizations and loved to touch and try them he had the mysterious jury paris and the rio negro indians that women are not allowed to look at and that even youths may not see till they have been subjected to fasting and scourging, and the earthen jars of the Peruvians that have the shrill cries of birds and flutes of human bones such as Alfonso de Oval heard in Chile, and the sonorous green jaspers that are found near Cusco and give forth a note of singular sweetness. He had painted gourds filled with pebbles that rattled when they were shaken, and long clarin of the Mexicans into which the performer does not blow, 
but through which he inhales the air, the harsh tury of the Amazon tribes that is sounded by the sentinels who sit all day in high trees and can be heard, it is said, at a distance of three leagues, the temponatsli that has two vibrating tongues of wood and is beaten with sticks that are smeared with an elastic gum obtained from the milky juice of plants, the yodel bells of the Aztecs that are hung in clusters like grapes, and a huge cylindrical drum covered with the skins of great serpents, like the one that Bernal Diaz saw when he went to Cortez and to went with Cortez into the Mexican temple, and of whose doleful sound he has left us so vivid a description. The fantastic character of these instruments fascinated him, and he felt a curious delight in the thought that art, like nature, has her monsters, things of bestial shape and with hideous voices. Yet, after some time, he wearied of them and would sit in his box at the opera, either alone or with Lord Henry, listening in rapt pleasure to Tannhauser and seeing in the prelude to that great work of art a presentation of the tragedy of his own soul. On one occasion, he took up the study of jewels and appeared at a costume ball as Anne de Joyeuse, Admiral of France, in a dress covered with 560 pearls. This taste, in, this taste enthralled him for years, and indeed may be said never to have left him. He would often spend a whole day settling and resettling in their cases the various stones that he had collected, such as the olive green chrysoberyl that turns red by lamplight, the, simul the simulfane with its wire-like line of silver, the pistachio-colored peridot, rose pink and wine yellow topazes, carbuncles of fiery scarlet with tremulous four-rayed stars, flame red cinnamon stones, orange and violet spinels, and amethysts with their alternate layers of ruby and sapphire. He loved the red gold of the sunstone and the moonstone's pearly whiteness and the broken rainbow of the milky opal. He procured from Amsterdam three emeralds of extraordinary size and richness of color and had a turquoise de la Vielle Rocher that was the envy of all the connoisseurs. He discovered wonderful stories also about jewels and Alfonso's clericalis disciplina, a serpent was mentioned with eyes of real jacinth and in the romantic history of Alexander, the conqueror of Emanthia, was said to have found in the Vale of Jordan snakes with collars of real emeralds growing on their backs. There was a gem in the brain of the dragon, Philostrius told us, and by the exhibition of golden letters and a scarlet robe, the monster could be thrown into a magical sleep and slain. According to the great alchemist Pierre de Boniface, the diamond rendered a man invisible, and the agate of India made him eloquent. The Cornelian appeased anger, and the hyacinth provoked sleep, and the amethyst drove away the fumes of wine. The garnet cast out demons, and the hydropicus deprived the moon of her color. The, the selenite waxed and waned with the moon, and the melosius that discovers thieves could be affected by the only blood only by the blood of kids. Leonardus Camillus had seen a white stone taken from the brain of a newly killed toad. That was a certain anecdote against poison. The bezor that was found in the heart of the Arabian deer was a charm that could cure the plague. In the nest of Arabian birds was the asphalates that, according to Democritus, kept the wearer from any danger by fire.
And that'll do it for this afternoon's reading of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. That was chapters 9 through 11a. I hope you enjoyed the reading. For some reason, I'm having to stop right now because for some reason, I keep getting kicked off the internet and it really is a hassle. It's a problem. It interrupts my flow. So I figure I should just stop right here and give this and give this another try tomorrow. Um, I've already had this PC looked at. It's a laptop and I thought it was fixed, but apparently it is not. So back to the drawing board for that. Uh, in the meantime, please do check the episode details. If you are interested in merchandise, I have a few things that you might find um, to your liking. So please do click the link and see if there's something there in the merchandise that strikes your fancy. Thanks so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. I really appreciate it. And I hope to be back with you tomorrow for some remaining chapters of this great book, if I can ever get through it, Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>